It's time to begin. Let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 15. We left off commenting on verse 35 last week. We're going to reread a few verses just to get our context so we can continue from there. 2 Kings chapter 15. And I'll begin reading in verse 32, read through verse 35, and then we'll continue on what we studied last week. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, began Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, to reign. Five and twenty years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And as you know, that's the capital of Judah. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He did all according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Howbeit the high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burnt incense still in the high places. He built the higher gate of the house of the Lord. And last week... With this verse in mind, and the verse before it about what his father had done, we learned some traditions, or that some traditions our parents left us are not wise to continue. And, of course, there are some that are wonderful and that we ought to continue. And I also read what Jesus said about this issue about doing what your parents did in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 37, where he said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. And of course, the peace he was talking about was the peace that man wants, not the peace that he really came to bring. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father. And the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You notice how Jesus didn't say, I came to set a man at variance against his mother-in-law. I think that comes naturally. No, it doesn't. I love my mother-in-law, and I'm sure many of you do also. But Jesus did not say, don't love your mother or your father. He said, don't love them more than me. And if what they say... And what they do, if the traditions they have left you go against God's word, then your love for God should keep you from going against his word, even if your parents did, even if they still do. In Mark chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, Mark 7, verses 8 through 9, Jesus said this to the Pharisees, For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, 
as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things, such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. Now apply this back to King Jotham who we're studying right now. Jotham, when he left the high places standing, he laid aside the commandment of God, just like the Pharisees did. He laid aside the commandment of God concerning where and how the sacrifices were to be made. He laid aside the commandment of God concerning thou shalt worship the Lord thy God only. Because the text told us that the people... Still, it said the word still, they still worshiped in the high places. In other words, they just did what they were doing in Uzziah's time, during Jotham's time. And although Jotham himself apparently did not go to these high places, he also didn't tear them down to keep the people from disobeying the Lord. So in this case, Jotham held the tradition of his father above the commandment of God. And maybe there was somebody in his day, I don't know, perhaps a preacher, a priest, Christian, who said, King, you're not supposed to do that. And he said, Oh, my father thought it was good enough. It's good enough for me. And that's wrong. So the next question might be, Well, is there any tradition we should keep? Well, of course there is. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, the Apostle Paul tells us what tradition we ought to keep. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 15, he wrote, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, that means because of what he just said, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. In that verse, the word hold means to hold on, to hold fast or securely. Not like somebody says, here, would you hold this for me? I used to do that a lot when my dad would work on a car. He'd say, here, son, hold this. Well, in a minute, he was going to want it back. So if I held it fast, then I wouldn't have given it back, would I? So that's what holding fast is, is to hold fast and don't give it back. Don't let go of it. So when you hold those traditions, that's what you do. You learn, boy, this is good, what Paul said. You learn the tradition from the epistle, and we have his epistles, his letters in the Bible. You learn it from here, and when you learn it, the next thing you do is you hold it fast. You don't say, oh... That was probably for them back then, but God doesn't understand how things are now. Yes, he does. And he expects you to hold it fast just like 
Paul told those Thessalonians to hold fast those traditions. The ones that you learn from the epistle, from the word, those are the ones you hold fast. Now, here's what's beautiful about that. If your parents held fast those epistles and you're holding them fast, then to keep their traditions of your parents is a wonderful thing. But the reason it's wonderful is because they kept their traditions that they learned maybe from their parents, but definitely from God's Word. So the traditions that my grandfather, the one who instructed me in the way of salvation and under whose ministry I became a Christian as a teenager, the traditions he taught me, I want to hold them fast because I know where he got them from. I've seen for myself the word that he believed and obeyed. It's the same word I believe in and have obeyed in the person of Christ, not in my own flesh. Now, that word hold, there are traditions that we're to hold, and that's what God's Word says and what the man of God preaches to us. The words written in epistles or letters concerning the gospel. But any tradition that points away from the gospel is the equivalent of a high place, as it was in Jotham's day. And it has to be torn down. It adds to the gospel or it takes away from it and it's vain. So if someone says, well, I believe the gospel, but where is the but? That's what the Pharisees tried to convince people who believed in Jesus for salvation. They said, well, now that's good, but you need to keep the traditions of Moses and be circumcised and all that to, to really, really be saved. And they had a high place, didn't they? That was the law that they added to the gospel. And the gospel is a tradition that must be held fast. And that's what you do when you believe it, when you put your trust in it. And you say, well, I'm, I'm not going to be accepted by God any other way than to trust in what his son did at the cross for me. That he died and was buried, he rose again for me. I'm going to hold that fast to that tradition. And the way we hold fast to it is not by saying, ooh, I'm really going to believe it as hard as I can. You just rest in it. You believe it. You trust it. You say, yes, that's for me. And what confuses the gospel, that which confuses the gospel, if that's a tradition that you held fast to, then you need to let it go. And this is where... The pride of a lot of churches, church members, pastors have caused them to err when it comes to the gospel. They've held fast a tradition of men like Jotham did the tradition of his father Uzziah. Leave the high places alone, let the people go worship and do what they want. They've held fast a tradition of men concerning what a man must do to be saved. And those pastors of such churches went to such and such independent Baptist university or college, and they learned the legalism of the altar call and the sinner's prayer and, quote, surrendering your life to Christ and so forth. And when they were pressed 
to find it in the Bible to show us that that's what Jesus said we must do to be saved. They couldn't do it. And so they would shame and ridicule the person who asked them, show me in the Bible where it says that. And other independent Baptist preachers and church members ridicule folks who do that. That ought not be that way. But it's because they've held those things fast. And it's a scary thing to let go of something that you've held fast for a long time. It really is. The longer you hold something fast, the harder it is to let it go. And this is true for good doctrine, and it's true for bad doctrine. And this is my prayer for you and me, is that any wrong doctrine, and doctrine is just teaching, any wrong teaching to which we hold fast right now, my prayer is that we'll drop it from our hands like a hot potato once we see, once we're shown that God's Word contradicts it. Now that's the mark of a good Bible student right there. One who's growing in the faith is not that they're perfect in their doctrine, but when they realize, hey, I think I may have misunderstood this doctrine. I may have misapplied this passage and somebody shows them, here's what God's Word says about it. That mature person, spiritually mature person will say, oh, well, then that's what I'm going with. I'm going with what the Bible says. I'll drop that other one like a hot potato. I don't want any part of it. I don't want to pick it up again. I sure don't want to hold on to it. But it's also my prayer that we hold fast to sound doctrine, just like it was Paul's prayer for those Thessalonians that we hold fast to it and hold fast to it for a long time so that when we're tempted by the devil, we will not drop it like a hot potato. If you get your doctrine from the scattered teaching on Facebook or the radio or some other media, and you never learn systematically the theology that God's Word teaches, and that doesn't come overnight, that doesn't come in one lesson, we spend a year next door on the Genesis to Jesus or the creation to Christ when we taught it in that format. A year, 50 lessons is what the creation to Christ class has. And I think the pastor's Genesis to Jesus is probably not far off from that. So it doesn't happen overnight. It's line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. That's how you develop the understanding. So if you get your doctrine from that scattered hit and miss here and there theology that you get on the radio, then you won't hold fast to sound doctrine. And with that being said, if you hold fast to sound doctrine, you'll recognize it when you see it on Facebook or you hear it on the radio. Those aren't bad places. We use, uh, now we use Facebook. We don't use the radio, but we use Facebook to carry on the work of the Lord and to see evidence of it from our brothers and sisters across the world when they send us testimonies and photos of the work and, and all of that. But you know when you hold fast to sound doctrine, you'll know it when you see it. You'll say, yeah, that's what I've been holding on to, and I'm glad to see somebody else is holding on to it as well. Did you know that Jesus gave pastors to the church so that you would hold fast to only that which is sound doctrine and not to anything else. That's why Jesus gave pastors to the church. And the 
The text for that is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. Ephesians 4, 11 through 15. And Paul, speaking about Jesus, said, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature and of the fullness of Christ. Now listen, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. In other words, picking one up and putting it down and picking up another one and putting it down. And here's how that happens. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. There's one place in this world where people should not be pointed away from the gospel. There's one place where nothing should compete for attention with the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that place is the Lord's house. And yet, and at least, and this is just this year, I could spend a week telling you about what I've seen over the decades. In just this year, in two cases, I saw photographs of people in Baptist churches on Resurrection Day, and they were posing with either a real or a fake bunny, the so-called Easter bunny. And that's a tradition that more and more churches and pastors are content to leave standing. Now, let's just get real practical here. There are two days of the year when churches can expect a larger congregation than any other time. Do you know what those two are? Easter's one, and what's the other? Christmas, right. And in those services, there will be faithful Christians because they're going to come all the time if they can. There will be visitors who come in who've never either been to the church or perhaps that's when they go is when they come to town and visit their family on those holidays and go to church with them. There will also be people come in who claim to be Christians and usually don't go to church, but they'll tell people, we're going to go to Easter service. You know, the word Easter is used one time in the King James translation, and it means it comes from the word for Passover, and it's found in the New Testament. And Jesus, the Passover lamb, well, if you study the Passover, you're studying about Jesus. Jesus, the Passover lamb, was sacrificed for the sins of the world. And resurrected from the dead after three days. And it is that message and that image that people need to have in their minds when they come to church and when they leave. But instead they see a high place that's left standing in the form of the Easter bunny. And it's no wonder so many people are confused about the gospel. I'm not a rabbit hater. They're cute little critters till they bed down in my garden. 
And I'm not a fun hater. You hang around me very long, you'll see how much fun we have. But when it comes to the gospel, I'm narrow-minded just like Jesus was. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so when he tells us that, he's telling us the gospel is very narrow. And on the two days a year when we have people come in who either are lost or who are very shallow in their understanding of the gospel, we need to take those opportunities to teach them the gospel. We don't need to cloud it and confuse it with all the cutesy stuff that people like to introduce into the church. In in Second Chronicles, well, I'll tell you, let's look back in verse 35, if you're still in Second Kings 15, and then we'll we'll move on here because I could stay there a long time. Look at the very end of the verse about Jotham. He built the higher gate of the house of the Lord. King Jotham left this one act, or he did this one act that God saw fit to mention specifically. And there's a parallel passage for this over in 2 Chronicles 27, verses 3 through 4. I read it to you last week, I believe. And we're given just a little more detail there about Jotham's works as a king. And in that one, it said, He built the high gate of the house of the Lord, and on the wall of Ophel he built much. Moreover, he built cities in the mountains of Judah, and in the forest he built castles and towers. Now, in our text, we have the words higher gate. What was the higher gate? Well, if you go back in your mind, don't turn there, but you can write it down, to the building of the temple in Solomon's day when he was first placed on the throne. And it's found there in 1 Kings chapters 6 through 8. It's a pretty long passage because there were a lot of intricacies that, uh, that were necessary to make this as beautiful as it was. And the entrances to the temple in those passages were called doors rather than gates. They had the same purpose, that is, to make an entry into a certain place. And this temple was supposed to be a more permanent, although we know nothing's permanent, right? But it was supposed to be a more permanent structure, an immovable structure. Unlike the tabernacle, the temple couldn't be torn down and carried around and set back up again. They weren't in the wilderness anymore wandering. But even in the building of the tabernacle, if you go back into the Old Testament further where the the tabernacle is described and how it's built, the layout of it, there were three gates. And one of them entered into the courtyard from the outside. And then once you were in the courtyard, one gate or one set of curtains, but one gate entered into the holy place where the altar of incense was and the table of showbread and the candles, the golden candlesticks. And then there was one that entered into the Holy of Holies. So you had three total entrances, but you could only get in one way, and then in here one way, and then in here one way. So there was one way each time. Those were the only three gates that were commanded 
to be built, the only entrances or doors in the tabernacle. And I believe that this higher gate that we see here, first time you see it in the Bible, I believe that this higher gate may be the same as the new gate that is referred to in Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 10. Jeremiah 26 verse 10, and I'll read that to you. When the princes of Judah heard these things, then they came up from the king's house unto the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. So now there's another gate. The high gate, or higher gate, as it's, it says high gate in Second Chronicles, it says higher gate in our text, it's the same place. The high gate, which had never been commanded by the Lord, or even imagined by Solomon, was built by this king and was mentioned in his legacy. In Jeremiah's time, royalty came from the king's house and sat down in the entry of this new gate. So it appears that this new gate or high gate was made by royalty for royalty. That's, that's uh, my opinion. But in either case, what we do know is that it was a new thing. Because the word new translated in the Old Testament is from a word that means a new thing. It is also translated as the word fresh in Job 29.20. Now think about Jotham. Rather than obeying the declared word of the Lord by worshiping him according to what he has already commanded in Exodus, in Leviticus, Concerning the temple, concerning the sacrifices, God gave a very detailed description of what he wanted done, how he wanted things built, how he wanted sacrifices done. Rather than obeying all that, Jotham made a fresh new thing called the high gate. How many ways were there into the tabernacle in the wilderness? There was one. How many entrances were there to the holy place? One. How many ways were there into the Holy of Holies? There was one. But the religion of Cain, it's sneaky, isn't it? It has always liked things that were new, things that were fresh. Abel came to God in the way God commanded him, through the blood of an innocent substitute. Cain came to God in a fresh New way. Because in Genesis 4, 3, it said, Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Now, his brother had brought blood. And instead of Cain saying, I'm going to do just like my brother. I'm going to bring a blood sacrifice. That's what he did. That's what God told him. That's what I'm going to do. Cain said, I'm going to. I'm going to do something fresh, something new. Well, God rejected that fresh and new way, didn't he? God is not into our fresh and new religious inventions at all. He's not interested in what our thoughts are about how to improve the church and all of that. 
He's given us commands to obey. And you know, in our day, this is the doings of the churches of Laodicea, in my estimation. On the one hand, such a church may still sing amazing grace with those beautiful words, those scriptural words. And on the other hand, that same church holds fast the traditions of men and lays these legalistic burdens on poor, vulnerable people who are just trying their best to keep them. And they're constantly stressed, worried about whether they've done enough, whether they're sincere enough, whether they're surrendered enough. These churches claim, oh, it's the same old message, we just have a new method. Jotham built a new gate, a high gate, the text tells us, to the Lord's house. And today the church on the mountain builds a new theme park for the kids to play in while the adults are entertained in the auditorium. But in neither case did any of them get their commandments from God concerning this. What did the Apostle Paul tell young Timothy, who was a, a new preacher? What did he tell him to do? He said, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. He didn't say, hey, you know, people are going to stop coming if you keep preaching that, that gospel. It's too narrow. So maybe you ought to build you this or that or have this new program or give, you know, have a raffle or a drawing or something to get people to come to church. He said, Preach it in season and out of season. When you see fruit born, when you don't see fruit born. When it's popular, when it's not popular. Preach the gospel. And not only today, but over probably I would say the last century, just from what I've read, there are entire church staffs who are looking for new ways to appeal to the worldly, fleshly, desires that have infected their churches and it's sickening that they don't trust the pure doctrine of the bible that they want to improve upon it as they say the message of the cross they don't trust they don't trust the work of the holy spirit to bring in and to keep those who are or who will become members of the lord's church i want to read you something and this, bless my heart, and our pastors as well. I'm going to leave the person's name out. But it was posted by one of the people who has been visiting our church, either in person or online. And I'll read the Facebook post first, and then I'll read this person's response. The Facebook post said, when a church changes their values to match current culture, they're no longer following the Bible, they're following the lost. That's exactly true. And then a man replied to that, they're no longer a real church. Our visitor then replied, our church is still a real church, straight out of the Bible, end quote. Now that person came to our church as an unbeliever and yet is now defending truth. Now, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And I believe God's doing a mighty, saving work in that person, whom I pray will soon become a Christian. 
Now I want you to imagine if that dear soul had come to this church and we began trying to cater to that person's unbelief by just building a new gate, having a fresh new thing, saying, you know, normally we preach against what you believe, but we're gonna, we don't want you to leave, so we're just going to accept you just like you are in your sin. We would have done just as wrongly as King Jotham did, in my view, when he built the higher gate. That new thing, that fresh thing, rather than holding fast the word of the Lord concerning the house of the Lord. And you know the words I read from that dear person warmed my heart and it strengthened my faith in the work of God's Spirit. And we would not have had the pleasure of reading those words had we built a high gate, had we built a new gate, made a fresh new thing, rather than just preaching the truth and to do it in love. If you preach the truth, you're going to preach it in love. When you start adding things to it to be ugly, you're not preaching the truth anymore. You're adding your own opinion. The truth can be very harsh. We don't have to add our own uh, gasoline to it, do we? It's, it's pretty, it cuts right down the middle like a two-edged sword like the Bible said it does. It doesn't leave anything under the blade. You fall on one side of it or the other, but it's still the truth. And God gave it to us because he loves us, not because he's trying to, to upset us or any of that. And I'd like to say one other thing about this higher gate we read about. Since when does royalty or any other special class of people have the right to enter into the Lord's house or the kingdom of God by any way other than the way he ordained? That's the same mindset if someone believes that, that, well, there's a, there's a higher gate for the royalty. There's a special way for them to enter in, then that same person would think when a king of a country dies, he's going to go to heaven because he's a king and it's a God-fearing country and all of that. You know, the national anthem of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, is now it's God Save the Queen. It was actually written as God Save the King. And the dates uh, when it was written are arguable, but it was several hundred years ago. And the first verse of the current anthem reads, God save our gracious queen, long live our noble queen, God save the queen. Send her victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, God save the queen. Now there's no higher gate, there's no new gate through which Queen Elizabeth could have entered to make her acceptable to God. If her faith was in what Jesus did for her on the cross then she doesn't need another gate, and she's with him now. If her faith was in a new gate or a higher gate, then she would have rejected what Jesus did for her at Calvary. And if that were the case, there's not a new gate or a higher gate that could grant her entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Second Chronicles 27 verses 3 through 4 that I read to you a while ago, in that we saw that Jotham built more than a higher gate. He built castles, towers, cities, as well as building on the wall at Ophel. So we might call him Jotham the builder. He was a builder. He didn't tear down the high places, but he sure built some nice castles and towers and cities and added to the wall and put a new gate. 
to the Lord's house. You know, when the average church is trying to survive their own doctrinal drought, when the average church is trying to add numbers to the congregation by making it more appealing, sometimes they'll start a building program. And I've been a part of one of those in a church where I was a member many years ago. And in those days, we had $80,000, roughly $80,000 in the bank. And had everyone been tithing, there would have been a lot more. But our church was in need of revival. And I believe we had many so-called members who were lost. And our pastor decided to start a building program to get things moving. To give the people something to be a part of. That all sounds good. That would get a lot of people shaking their head, yes, nodding their head, going amen. So he had a very well-known evangelist slash pastor come to our church to speak on a Sunday. And at the end of the service, that pastor went down to the front here and took a ceramic vase and a hammer. And he broke that vase. Those shards went all over the carpet. And he reached down and he picked up a piece of that broken vase. And he said, every piece of this broken vase represents a person in this auditorium. And so then he asked everybody to come to the front and pick up a piece of that broken vase. And that would be their token of commitment to participate in the building program. And all I could think of was, man, I'm the one who has to vacuum that carpet and get all those pieces up. That, didn't, that whole thing didn't appeal to me at all. Well, what was the result? From that day forward, our finances plummeted in a death spiral. Giving went down, and many other things happened that I won't address publicly. And it wasn't too long after that that I moved my family to another church. You see, we didn't need a building program at that church. We needed the gospel. We needed the gospel to be clearly preached so that it could be clearly understood. And we needed people who loved God's word more than the worldliness that had gradually crept into our church. Now, we had a few who dearly loved the Bible, and I dearly loved them. But most of the others were uncomfortable talking about the scriptures you could ask them after church, what would you learn? Oh, <laughs> that was good. Hey, you going to watch the Cowboys this afternoon? Well, might and might not, but I just heard a really good lesson or uh, the Scripture spoke to me today or whatever it may have been, so they weren't that comfortable. Listen, friend, there is no city, there's no wall, there's no tower, there's no new gate or higher gate that can replace what God declared in His infallible eternal Word. Jotham didn't need to build. He needed to repent. He needed spiritual maturity. He was a good man, as many shallow Christians are today. He was a good man. The Bible says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. How be it? <laughs> he didn't tear down the high places. And then he, he didn't tear down what he should have torn down, and he built what he shouldn't have built. 
What the people needed was not his shallow goodness. They needed to see a king who was strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now look in verse 36. We're in 2 Kings 15, verse 36. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Now some more of those acts that we don't see here are listed over in 2 Chronicles 27, and I'll just read you verses 5 through 6. I read verses 3 through 4 a minute ago. 2 Chronicles 27, 5 through 6 says this about Jotham. He fought also with the king of the Ammonites and prevailed against them. And the children of Ammon gave him the same year an hundred talents of silver and ten thousand measures of wheat and ten thousand of barley. So much did the children of Ammon pay unto him, both the second year and the third. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. And that goes right along with what the scripture said when we're introduced to him, that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He just didn't demand that others do so. So God rewarded him somewhat, but rather than, at least rather than paying off his enemies like Menachem did in Israel, Jotham took money from his enemies. Now that's a little bit better, isn't it? He made them a tributary. He prepared his ways before the Lord. And as we learned before, he was a good man like Uzziah, but he could have been a great man like David. Verse 37. In those days, the Lord began to send against Judah, Reason the king of Syria and Pekah the son of Remaliah. Now remember, he's the king of Israel. And we've seen what happens when... Gentile enemies come against Israel or Judah. We've seen what happens when Israel and Judah come against each other. Now, both Gentiles and Israel are coming against Judah. The wolves without and the wolves within, so to speak. And we have the same thing happening to us. Americans are attacking Americans. And foreigners are attacking Americans. It's happening here on the mainland. It's happening in other parts of the world. It's physical. It's social. It's by way of cyberspace and every other way. And the Lord's church is also experiencing this two-pronged attack, both inside the camp and outside of it. The Apostle Paul warned about those wolves in sheep's clothing. There's wolves who are in wolves' clothing, but there are wolves who are in sheep's clothing. You know, there was a day when the church was respected by most people, even when those people were against it. Those who did not darken the church's door knew that on Sundays they were not going to get to buy liquor. They knew that. They knew their own behavior, not just in that area, but in every area, was shameful, so they hid it. Well, nobody's hiding anything anymore, are they? Did you know that Texas still has a law against obscenity? It's on the books. It's in the Texas Penal Code, Section 43.23. It says, a person commits an offense if, knowing its content and character, he wholesale promotes or possesses with the intent to wholesale promote any obscene material or obscene device. Now, the rest of that chapter goes on to describe what we know as pornography. 
And the punishment for that offense is up to a year in jail. In some cases, it's felony. So you might be asking, how do all these stores and businesses get away with selling pornography? Because a court declared that law to be unconstitutional and unenforceable throughout the state of Texas. So our own courts have taken the Bible, the same book on which they, the officials lay their hands as they recite their oaths of office, they've taken the Bible, they've taken Texas law and the U.S. Constitution, and turned God's position on the matter upside down. As we close here, I'll read to you from Article 16, Section 1 of the Texas Constitution. This is the oath that elected and appointed officers take, including judges. These are the words they repeat in their oaths. I, state your name, do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the duties of the office of district court judge of the state of Texas and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States and of this state. So help me God. Of this state means the laws of the state of Texas. So when churches preach against obscenity, we're in agreement with God's word. We're in agreement with the Texas Constitution and with the Texas Penal Code. We're not in disagreement with any of that. But nevertheless, we're not only attacked by the world, which the Syrians represent in our text, but now also by other churches, which Pekah, the king of Israel, represents in our text. And with that, we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for those who came and listened and paid attention to the word. And Lord, we just pray that these truths would not leave us, that we not put them aside and hold fast to the traditions of the world, but to that which is plainly declared in the scriptures. And may your spirit help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.